I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town Podcast. In this episode of the Food About Town Podcast, Mitch Gruber from Rochester City Council came over to the studio to talk a lot about uh, what is currently going on in Rochester, his motivation as part of City Council, as well as his experience with Foodlink and just a wide range of different topics, especially the public market we talked on that for a little while. I really enjoyed having Mitch over to the studio, and hopefully we'll get to chat again in the future, both about his role in City Council, Rochester food in general, and hopefully we'll have him in the near future as a guest curator for a meal uh, from a really cool restaurant in Rochester in January. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Mitch Gruber, and uh, if you do, please let him know. You can reach out to him uh, on his website uh, and reach out to him however you can find him. Uh, not on social media, as you'll hear in the episode. Uh, and then also, please go to Roche- yeah, Rochester. Yeah, Rochester's CurateMeals.com, which is my CurateMeals.com with a bunch of my partners, where you can buy local meals. We have a great one coming up on December 15th with a really cool local restaurant. That's going to be a vegan meal. So if you're vegan like me, make sure you go and buy that meal on December 15th at CurateMeals.com. And also check out, um, I'm as we mentioned in the last uh, last episode, I'm now part of the Lunchador Podcast Network. So make sure you check out all the shows on the network and let me know what you think about them. So thank you so yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode with Mitch Gruber from Rochester City Council. And we're back with another episode of the Food Well Town podcast. It is a chilly Monday night. We're edging closer and closer, closer and closer into winter in Rochester. There's snow on the ground, and I'm here with a guest. Guest, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Mitch Gruber. I'm a city council member and the chief partnerships officer of Foodlink. So are those your two things? Do you have any other titles? It seems like you have lots of titles. I used to have other titles. I was uh, <laughs> trying to be a professor uh, when I was working on my PhD. Some My mother calls me doctor. Mm. For her, it's very important that she had a nice Jewish doctor, but nobody else, that title doesn't that doesn't stick very well. Uh, I'm a new dad. That's a new title. Nice. But uh, How many one, years? He is 20 months old, almost two. So you're almost to the point where you don't talk about months anymore, right? Right. I'm almost to the point where I talk about something called like the terrible twos or something ah, like that. Yeah, it's years now. And then yeah. it, it feels like years regardless if it's years or not. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I, those, are, those are a couple titles. But I think the reason that I'm fortunate enough to be on this show is because of my relationship to food. And I, I think those two titles are the main ones, except for... I'm also a, a rigorous eater. Ooh, we're definitely going to talk about that because that's one of the other reasons we've been talking recently. Um, but yeah, let's let's start with um, let's start with Foodlink because that's how I first got to know you, and we'll we'll talk about City Council and other things coming up. But let's talk about Foodlink. So Foodlink's how I first came to know you, uh, and I don't know if we ever officially met. We probably met once or twice randomly at you know uh, the the festival of food mm. or some other events at the time. I think I interviewed somebody on the podcast a long time ago. It was Tara Keller maybe Yeah, a long time ago. It was yeah. probably like six or seven years ago. I interviewed Tara's her. Tara's our chief operating officer. Yep. Yeah. She, she was a delight and you know, it's, you know, that's the kind of event that we've, you know, at least hopefully temporarily lost during the pandemic and hopefully we'll have that back at some point. Um, but to me, um, when, what, yeah, the last time I ran into you was at the public market 
And I think that was for that was for city council signatures, probably. Could be. I go to the market every Saturday. The market is the place I wrote my I wrote my dissertation about the history of the market. My wife and I got married at the market. Mm. My grandfather used to work on the market. My first job at Food Think was on the market. So chances are if you're there, you'll you'll see me. Well, let's talk let's 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 pivot to that because I love the Rochester public market. To me, it is it's unique in a lot of ways when it comes to public markets. A lot of people now go to the markets in big cities. Um, and even even cities that aren't that much bigger than Rochester, you know, Cleveland, Buffalo, not Buffalo, Cleveland, Milwaukee, um, cities like that that have public markets, but they've turned into they've turned into indoor food, you know, courts. food courts more than they are true public spaces that's right for the city and for for all the people of the area and that's something where i think rochester is almost very unique with it certainly is uh our public market is also the oldest continuously run public market in the country it was uh legislatively it started in the year 1900 it opened in 1905 and it's been run continuously ever since um what i love about the market so much to your point is it's the type of place where I can go there on any given Saturday and I can go buy a $10 loaf of artisanal bread or I can go buy 25 cent Driscoll strawberries where half of them probably are not good anymore, but I can pick through the rest and it's worth it for 25 cents and everything in between. And that's a special thing that you don't find at Fennel Hall. You don't find at a whole bunch of the other markets that you mentioned, which really have become glorified food courts. And I think that the Rochester Public Market has really done some very important things over the years to maintain its character and to maintain its integral role in the community, including the very neighborhood in which it sits. Well, and I think that's one of the the most striking things about the public market is especially as it's been as it's been developed further, and I think necessarily so, you know, it it couldn't stay a snapshot of what it was in the 80s and 60s and 40s forever um, with the way things are and the demands of, you know, clientele both in the city and outside, there needed to be development to modernize the appearance of the market, both infrastructure for food safety and for the vendors and for the restaurants that are coming in as well, bringing people into the market area. But it's one of the, as developments happen, it's become more striking the difference between the restaurants that are going into that area and the surrounding area around the market. And I think that it's becoming even more striking as development continues. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about some of the developments that are happening at the market. Um, you know, some of the restaurants that are coming in there, I, I'm not sure necessarily if I had a choice in picking them, I'm not sure I would have uh, picked them in terms of, again, the character of the market but I also really believe, as I think historians are, t uh, are inclined to believe, that uh, these things, uh, th there are cycles. Thing, you know, the, the world has these interesting ebbs and flows. And I think what a lot of people don't know about the public market, if you don't mind me going deep in, re uh, uh, reaching deep back into the history for oh, a moment. Please do. When the market was established, um, there was a huge argument at the time about whether the market was going to be a retail market or a wholesale market. Mm. And on top of that, there was a huge argument at the time about where the market was going to be located. And what ended up happening was 
the market where we know it today on Pennsylvania or Union, however you want to call it. But most people at the time wanted the market to be downtown and they wanted it to be a retail market. But the way it was established, if you think about Rochester in 1904, where the market is right now was very much undeveloped. There was not a whole lot of residential out that way. It, in fact, it was bought from a guy named George Molson, who was a nursery man, you know, Flower City with a W. We were, we were the Flower City. So the, the market was established as a wholesale market. Now think about that today. When you're there on a Saturday, nobody would ever know that's a, that was supposed to be a wholesale market. There's touches of it around if you're paying attention. You know, there's the produce vendors that are both supplying many of the vendors at the market and many of the restaurants and, you know, uh, uh, institutions in our area. But by and large, it is a retail-focused market. Correct. On, on a good Saturday with good weather, there's somewhere around thirty to 40,000 people that visit that place. Wow. So clearly, it's a retail market predominantly. But that's not what it was established for. So I say that in, in regards to the restaurants we're talking about because what we also need to recognize is that the market's going to continue to evolve in different ways. What's critical is that the city of Rochester continues to actually administer that market. There continues to be a real sense that it is a public market for the public good and that it doesn't ultimately go out to the highest bidder. And I think because of what's been done at the public market over the years, and if you've never had Jim Farr on your show, mm. I would that would be, I would listen to every single word of Jim. I would listen to Jim Farr talk for 24 hours. I haven't, but I would absolutely love to. I'm when you talk about public market nerdery, I, I really care about the place and it's, it's shaped a lot of my views about farming and, you know, good stewardship of uh, vendors and stuff like that as yeah. well. And in part, you know, Jim's leadership there over the last 30 years has led it to be a place that continues to have a North star of serving the community of serving the farms around us. You know, I was just talking to Bush Art Farms on Saturday, a third, third, and actually now fourth generation farm who's there, while at the same time evolving and not being scared to evolve because it can't, you can't have it both ways. So I, I'm, I'm really proud of where the market has, has come, where it is right now. We need to keep that North Star as we move forward. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's, I've seen it change even in the, you know, 20 years I've been in Rochester you know, I, I got here in 2001. I went to the University of Rochester in 2001 and graduated in 05 and been here ever since. But that was my first exposure to the city was was that. You know, I went to the U of R, but you're so sequestered on campus um, Indeed. without without cars and being on that kind of uh, that kind of insular campus for as much as the uh, as much as the integration in the city is espoused. It's kind of an insular place in many ways. And that was my first exposure to the city was going to the public market on Saturdays and learning about all that stuff. And, it, and that's how we kept you. Yeah, absolutely. The public market no never doubt. loses one of their home court. No, no doubt. It's It changes. And when you travel more, you see the differences. You see that it is, it's one of the very few places that is for everyone. That's right. Um, and, you know, I certainly go almost every Saturday and I buy bread from my, from Keith Myers over at Flower City Bread, one of my favorite people in town. But I go visit my farmers, and they know me by name. They know who I am. And I can go there and talk to the guy and talk, ask him how his kids are doing. I can ask him about the harvest that season. I can get, you know, foraged goods from Alex Flowers right next door where he's pulling ramps and lily stems at the beginning of the season. And, and, and there's as, nothing and, quite like that. And as wonderful as that is, and I'm not suggesting that it's not, 
But that what the experience you just described is not all that different from people's experience who may go to the Brighton Farmers Market, which is probably Certainly. On, on paper the the best farmers market that we have in the region. The public market is is exceptional in my opinion because it is a public market. And on top of those farmers and the and the bakers like Keith, we also have wholesalers whose job it is to figure out what is the produce that is that is in surplus right now? What is the produce that I can get a good deal on? And how do I extend that good deal to every single person in this city? And it's that combination that we have that I think makes the public market so special. And why one of the things, the thing I'm actually most proud of with the public market, undoubtedly, of all markets in the entire country, the Rochester public market leads the nation in SNAP token sales. Mm. So even though we are, what, the not, not even in the top 50 of largest cities in the country. We have the number one grossing SNAP token sale, which means, for those of you who don't know, people who utilize food stamps exchange their food stamps in, uh, for tokens that they can use at the market as regular currency. So we are doing a real civic duty as a city to have that market there, to have 40,000 people come visit, and to have so many people use their public assistance on fresh local product. Yeah, and it makes a big difference. I know as a kid, you know, we benefited from uh, I think it was the WIC program at the time when I was a when I was a kid and we needed it. You know, there's no doubt about that. And it's those kind of things get I think improperly maligned in so many different ways and that you're right, that's what the market is about. It's about getting people the food they need to feed their families. Yep. At the core. And um so you talked about this is you got introduced. I don't know. Was that the first time you got introduced to it at Foodlink, or were you going to it before? Oh no, my my grandfather. So a lot of the the uh, the immigrants to this to this city back in the you know wave of immigration at the turn of the century uh, ended up working on the public market. Um, a lot of my dissertations actually focused on that era and um, and the way that there was this what historians call ethnic welfare. So my, my great grandfather, a Jewish guy, if he needed to go to the store in an era before credit cards, where was he going to get credit from, right? You get extended credit from the grocer on Joseph Avenue who speaks the language, who spoke Yiddish, who had the schmaltz, whatever it is that my grandfather needed. The same was true of the Polish community on Hudson Avenue, the Italian community on Upper Falls, the African-American community on Clarissa Street, whatever the case may be. So my great-grandfather, when he came here, um, worked on the public market. And my grandfather worked on the public market. And then when I was a little kid, my grandfather would take me to the public market regularly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's, it's an interesting thing because I grew up in a family business as, you know, you know, I grew up selling, uh, selling flowers and selling Christmas trees and sports cards and everything else. And I definitely identify with that, with the hustle it takes to do those kind of things. And I think, you know, those, those kind of things push a certain kind of values on the whole family, regardless of what you end up being in, uh, whatever you end up finally being. Right. I think those kind of values are pushed through the whole chain of people in some way or another. For sure. Um, so when you started at Foodlink, you were post-college, pre-PhD, if I remember correctly? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'll, I'll tell you the, the story briefly, if you don't mind. Please. Uh, so I spent my last semester of, I went to Binghamton university, go Bearcats. I think that's what they're called. Probably. I, sp I spent my last semester uh, at the university of Cape town 
in South Africa and I stayed, I stayed, I stayed in sub-Saharan Africa for uh, a little over a year, um, traveling around, really kind of figuring out just how big the world was. And by the way, going to a lot of markets, eating a lot of food. I think it's the only way really to travel. That's right. Is if you're anywhere, any city, even if you're just in America, go to the public market. You'll learn a lot about the city that way. Absolutely. But I was in uh, Zimbabwe. This was 2008. I was in Zimbabwe when they were experiencing the highest recorded rate of inflation in human history. People think we're going through a bad inflation moment right now. Um, Amateur hour. Yeah, this was this was really, really, uh, it was scary for the Zimbabwean people for sure. And I, I have vivid memories of staying in Harare, the capital, and I was staying with uh, friends of mine from the University of Cape Town. And they asked me to go to the store and get, you know, basic stuff, eggs, milk, bread, and I had to wait in a bread line for hours. I mean, hours and hours and hours uh, just waiting for the stock to arrive because the economy was in such shambles at the time. So anyways, I come back, long story short about my time in sub-Saharan Africa, I would have stayed forever, but I ran out of money. Um, I, was, I was, didn't have a work visa. So I came back home. I lived in my father's basement, classic move, mm-hmm. and searched desperately for a job that I felt like was going to help me continue to give back to the community. And I ended up working as a Head Start teacher for Action for a Better Community on Hudson Avenue, uh, right across from Franklin High School and the St. Stanislaus Church. And so there I was. Head Start is a a program from LBJ's War on Poverty. Uh, It is free pre-K for anyone under the poverty line. And you are federally mandated to serve every kid their breakfast, lunch, and snack. And there I was, a teacher in this class, and 17 kids never showed up. That was my full enrollment. 17 kids never showed up. It was, you know, 10, 12, 14 on a good day. But every day I'm getting food to serve 17 kids. And I'm throwing away, I remember dumping milk every single day. I took as much of it home as I could. I sent as much of it home as I could. But here I was just six months ago. I had been in Zimbabwe actually like really watching people hurt to get milk. And here I am on Hudson Avenue dumping milk. And it just blew my mind. It felt so uneasy, so uncomfortable, so sad uh, that I, I knew I needed to do something. So I, I called Foodlink. I didn't know what Foodlink was, frankly, but I called. And Tom Ferraro, who founded Foodlink, was the kind of guy who he took phone calls like that. And he met me. We had uh, we had a meeting in his office a few weeks later. And he could see that I was really serious about trying to fix this problem. And he said to me, Mitch, I hate to break it to you, but it's going to take some federal legislation to solve that problem because Head Start's a federally funded program and federally administered. But I really like your passion for this subject, so why don't you come work for me? So I finished the school year, and then I went to go work for Tom. And I more or less have been there ever since. That was 13 years ago. I'm celebrating my, my food link bar mitzvah this year. Uh, I left... I left full-time work for the two years of my coursework for my PhD, but I've been at Foodlink pretty much nonstop for the past 13 years. So at that point, what was the biggest, you know, over that course of time, you're talking 13 years, you know, some in and out, but what was the biggest thing you didn't know that you didn't know then that you know now? Like what, what was the thing you were just so, you were blind to, you know, coming in, you know, idealistic and passionate and now going through the journey, what's the thing you didn't know that you know now? Well, 
That's a great, it's a great question. I wish I had a very clean answer for you, but I'll tell you that that's actually the exact reason why, why I ended up going back to graduate school. After working for a year at Foodlink, that first year, I did a little bit of everything. Tom had me, you know, go out to rural communities and try to work, build partnerships with farmers. I was picking orders in a warehouse and trying desperately to learn how to use a forklift. Uh, I was doing all sorts of different things. And eventually it dawned on me that like, I'm, I'm actually not really understanding what the root of this problem is whatsoever. And I went back to school specifically to try to get a sense of kind of what, what it was that I was trying to, to help fix. And I, I guess the closest thing I have to a good answer to your very good question is that the, the issue with the food system as we know it in the United States of America is very much the, the same issue that we see with capitalism across the board. There's not something that is unique about food security. There's not something that's unique about food deserts. These are jargon that I actually really, I reject those terms. I, I'll use them if people ask me about them or want to talk about them. But I don't use those terms because at the end of the day, what I've learned is that this problem is actually a lot more simple than people want to make it out to be. We have a huge problem related to poverty in this country and specifically in this city. And at the end of the day, the only reason people go hungry is because they don't have the resources to buy food. We don't need to talk about these different words of uh, desert and, and, and uh, food swamp and this and that. Anyone in Rochester who has the means to get to Wegmans and has the means to pay the grocery bill at Wegmans or Tops can buy food 24 hours a day. And actually, you go into one of those stores and you could buy pretty much anything. There's not a scarcity of food. There's not a scarcity of, of adequate stores. There are scarcity of stores in certain neighborhoods. But again, that is because of the capitalist mindset where stores only go where profit is to be made. So I guess that, that in some ways, I thought there was like a, a secret formula to what this problem was about. But what I've learned over time is it's actually a whole lot more simple than I think most people assume it is. Yeah, because all, all those terms do is define a condition. It doesn't, it defines the symptoms. It doesn't define the root cause of what's going on. Like it's, it is there, it's a rudimentary look at, yeah, yeah, this is happening. Got it. There's not fresh produce in this area. It's unaffordable to the people that live in the area, but it's always, it's everything. All those things are systemic. These right. things aren't. It's not an acute problem. It almost never is an acute problem. It's almost always systemic That's right. when we look at those conditions and you see, oh, this is because blank and blank happened 50 years ago and it never got resolved. And it's and also these terms are, are very much about academic jargon. And again, you know, I was, I was an aspiring academic at some point. I understand the allure of the jargon, but let me give you an example of why I think it's so problematic. The, the USDA started to use the term food desert just after, really, I think it was just after the Obama uh, administration took over in 08. This was something that was near and dear to uh, the first lady, Michelle Obama's heart, and she started working on this issue. And the, and the USDA came out with something they called the food desert locator. Mm -hmm. And here's how they define a food desert. In an urban area, it is where you don't have a grocery store within a one-mile radius. In a rural area, it's where you don't have a grocery store within a 10-mile radius. Now think about how absolutely counterintuitive that is. In an urban area, we actually have some, I'm not saying it's perfect, but we have some public transportation, right? You can get pretty much anywhere in the city of Rochester. It may take a long time. It's not, it's not perfect by any means. But in some rural communities, 
including the ones that, we, you know, Food Link serves a 10-county service area. So I know our, the rural communities around here very well. Some rural communities have literally no public transportation. So if anything, it should be the opposite, that a rural community, it's a smaller geographic footprint, and an urban community, it's a larger one. But they, it, again, it's just, they're academic terms, I think for the sake of having something to study and look at. And I, I get that because just saying, give people more money is not the answer that I think a lot of lawmakers ultimately want to hear. But in some ways it actually is really the direction we have to go. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, there's, there's been numerous studies, you know, and I'm not going to cite specifics because I'm not that kind of academic when it comes to these things. I'm an economics nerd. But, you know, I, I'm not a study cider, but there's been plenty of those, you know, those kind of things showing that, you know, what solves it is universal basic, basic income solves those problems. Yeah. It's and, giving money to people and telling them, spend it on what you need. And, and that that's what solves any number of these problems. You look at people who are less, who are less food insecure this year, you know, over the last two years in a lot of ways, I'm sure there, there's been a lot of hardships, tons of hardships but there's also a lot of people who aren't starving because they got direct money paid to them. Correct. But I would even go one step further. A lot of the stuff with universal basic income, I think it's a, it's a very uh, sexy and chic term at the moment, even sexier and more chic back in the last presidential election. Of course. But let's be very real about this. Food stamps, which are now known as SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is an effective bipartisan program that was established, I mean, it's had a lot of iterations, but it really became kind of institutionalized and funded appropriately by the federal government. Well, not appropriately, but funded by the federal government back in the 70s. Um, food stamps are the kind of OG universal basic income in this regard, right? It's giving people money to buy on food. You have a lot of people talking about, well, what, you know, what should, what, what should be limited in terms of what people can or can't use SNAP on. At the end of the day, I actually think that we ought to be continue to, to grow what people can use their SNAP benefits on. And that has a proven impact. And there are a ton, again, of bipartisan studies. And I will be a, a study citer if I pull out my phone and decide to, <laughs> to give you the appropriate citation. But nothing addresses the world of hunger or malnutrition in this country better than an increased, well-funded SNAP program. Yeah, and I think I think the biggest issue with all that, I mean, you you touched on it briefly, is the is the well funded and easily accessible, and that's that's the trouble with so many so many programs is that, regardless of its you know bipartisan you know things, there's there's limits and restrictions being put on access through form filling out and you know barriers to entry for all these things that cause people not to use the benefits that they have, which to me, it, it, those are the things that bother me the most is that we have, we have that there. We have the program. We came up with a program and everybody should, again, everybody should agree that people that need food should be able to get the food that they need. Yep. I agree completely. And I don't dispute that, it, that uh, the SNAP program could continue to be run better. I will say uh, I, I can't shy away from politics, so I will, I'll get into this a little bit. But I will say that I think previous county administrations um, were very much kind of classic Republican administrations that said the less money that we ha the less money that we have in these federal entitlement programs, the better, which I think is an incredibly, incredibly poor 
line of thinking, even from a Republican's perspective, because something like SNAP, I forget the exact number, but I believe that the feds cover 80% of SNAP, which means the county, the, this, the locality is putting in probably somewhere around 20%. But think about how much money that the multiplier effect is when that money goes to be spent on local in local stores, which happens obviously that that is how food stamps are spent. They are spent in local stores. So I do believe this administration, the Bellow administration is gonna continue to find uh, creative ways to make SNAP more accessible to folks. Obviously eligibility requirements and criteria are what they are at a federal level. But to your point, we need to keep working on making these programs more accessible to folks. We also need to remember that we don't need to invent new terms. Like UBI is, is I have no problem with UBI. In fact, I think it's, I think there's a lot of things about the idea of UBI that I'd be very excited about. But to fill, to, to solve and address this specific problem in front of us, we don't need to invent new programs. We could actually just fund the ones that have the infrastructure in front of us right now. Yeah, and I think that makes sense because I mean, I do, I do feel some, you know, even though I was so young, you know, I, I do feel that's one of those things that definitely benefited me personally in a way that now I'm, you know, I'm in a very privileged position, but some of that's because we needed that and we got it. Well, nobody's going to learn well on an empty stomach. That's yeah. for damn sure. And I think the reality is we know at schools, we know, uh, we know all over the place that institutions don't think enough about food. I don't just want to throw public schools under the bus, although you may end up asking me some questions about that, and I certainly won't shy <laughs> away from it. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll defer from public schools for a second and, and, and say this. Food is supposed to be medicine, right? I grew up, when I got sick, first thing I did was have some Jewish penicillin, a.k.a. Bubby's chicken soup. And nine times out of ten, it did the trick. Well, not, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that medicine and science aren't important, but food is such an important way for us to fuel ourselves and for, for really thinking about food as medicine. How do we do that when hospitals don't even consider investing in food? And I will tell you a quick anecdote. My, I mentioned him before. Tom Farrar was the founder of Startup Funding in 1978. He was my personal mentor. He was someone who was very important to me. Tom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in October of 13, and he passed in February of 14. And uh, he was at Strong. I was with him almost every day. And Tom would every day start out my visit with the same joke. I don't know what's going to kill me first, the cancer or the food. <laughs> and it, it didn't matter what kind of mood he was in. He would start with that joke every single day. It just goes to show you, uh, we just need to continue to think about food as a place that we collectively, as a society, as government, as private institutions, just need to continue to invest in. But, I mean, yeah, not, not to belabor the point, but that's kind of indicative of your, you know, of that... Uh um, of your, uh, points on capitalism is that we have people in the hospital and we're, we're dealing with that. We have people who are there to get healthy and these companies are growing, you know, growing rapidly, especially the larger ones in bigger cities. And we're getting poor food. I I've been, you know, my mom works in a hospital. I've tried to get food in that place. I, there's nothing I would consider, you know, nothing that I would actively want to eat yep. in that place. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, you know, haute cuisine or even, you know, super well-made things. But a lot of these places are, 
yeah, we're we're at inst- it's institutional food. This well, isn't this isn't quality food well, for people that need it. It's truly institutional food. And the thing is that I mean, and this is where I think the really really ugly part about the the world we live in starts to come to light is that if you look at the huge global companies that have all these contracts, whether it's serving New York State prisons or serving all the hospitals, it's your Aramarks, it's your Sodexos, it's, you know, I, I could go on, it's your, it's what I think it's called Compass. I forget what they change. Their, these places change their name all the time. It's U.S. Foods. It's these huge, giant, multinational corporations who just go in and say, I'm going to have the contract to do your meals. And then, of course, you're not going to get people, you're, you're not going to get a company that's thinking about, well, how do we emphasize the local, the local bounty of a place like Rochester, which is, which is the, the breadbasket of New York. Absolutely. We could have places thinking about that, but instead they think, okay, what can I get on the commodity market that's going to be frozen and made who knows where that I can come in, snip a bag and heat it up the next day. And that's the food you get. Yeah. And I do appreciate some of the programs that New York state is pushing, especially in the educational realm around, you know, if you buy a certain amount of New York state products, you do get, you do get significant benefits from the state. I think that's a valuable contributor to schools sourcing locally some of the things that are inclusive in there, maybe not to what I would hope would be in there. But at the same time, if we're bringing that money into New York state, both from an economic and a hopefully sourcing local products in a, you know, sustainable farming way as well, you know, those kind of things, that's where I see the value. That's where I see some of that other money, not just at the direct to people level, but at, it's hard to make a difference person by person, but when you're dealing with a thousand kids in a school or, you know, however many thousand are in Rochester city school district at a time, or, you know, Greece central school districts or all the others, there's so much to do at the large levels. And th- those are the things I hope to see more of when we're spending that money in a way that's going to bring things together not break them apart. Uh, agree completely. And farm, farm to school initiatives, I think have been, have been pretty good. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, these are, this is legislation and programs I've worked on with the state for a long time. And I, I, I do agree that they're moving in the right direction, but I would just say that like at some point the proof is in the pudding. And right for now, sure. New York state, there is no reason on earth that New York state schools ever source apples from Washington. No, it's, we, it's ridiculous. We are, we are, we are staring at Wayne County right now from, from not, not literally to anyone who's listening, <laughs> but we, we are very, very close to Wayne County, which is the third biggest apple producing County in the entire nation. And yet there are tons of schools, not just in the state, but in the region who are getting apples from Washington state. Now, why is that? Why, why is this stuff happening? Ultimately because of ease, right? A lot of schools, hospitals, these Big institutions, they they're not gonna call the far the orchard in Wayne County and say, Can you bring over a bushel of apples? You contract with one of these huge multinational corporations who again are gonna figure out, well, the apples in Washington are great right now. I'm gonna get them and, and I'm gonna get them to everywhere I gotta go. If the farm to school legislation really worked, we would stop seeing Washington state apples in schools. And so I hope that what what that means to me is that either the incentive isn't enough or potentially the enforcement of it isn't enough, or potentially there isn't enough in terms of the the stick hasn't been used either. So I, I think we need to keep seeing this stuff grow. And these are the reasons why I ultimately got into politics. I mean, to, to, to get a little bit more to the 
initial question, which I probably never answered appropriately. I eventually got into politics because after, at the time, six, seven years at Foodlink, writing a dissertation and trying and kind of thinking about this on the academic market, I realized there is no place that you can actually have a greater impact on on this type of work than in policymaking, which is what drove me to run for office in the first place. Well, I think you've reached the perfect segue. So we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back with more from Mitch Gruber and we'll talk about politics and some other stuff as well. So we'll be right back. We're back with Mitch Gruber from Rochester City Council. And we have oh, we have got some weird stuff in our glass right now, right? Indeed. We've got some Haitian Claren. I this is my this is my rum example to people that don't know a lot about rum and how interesting and local it can be and how much local production, you know, affects the quality of something as well. You know, it's that artisanal um, you know, it's it's doing things the way they need to be done to make a product that's interesting, and I, I I love talking about that because for me it's always it's always a a lens into a different conversation which we were having a few of over the break, which was great. And I will say for the for the record, because I think this is an important thing for me to say, I challenged Chris to find a rum that I was going to <laughs> like, and he succeeded. So. Well, I, I take it as a general success, but that's that's my goal with so many things is, especially in food and drink things, whether it be with spirits um, or with exposing people to new foods. I apologize in advance for the shameless plug for Curate Meals, um, you know, uh, curatemeals.com, where we bring different foods from small producers, mostly minority-owned restaurants, and try to get them to different people so they can learn about all of what Rochester has to offer when it comes to food and the amazing people that make these uh, great dishes. Um, before we dive into, you know, uh, the city council stuff, you mentioned that you were, you were an eater and a lover of eating. So what, so you live over in the Susan B. Anthony neighborhood. I do. So what, what are your places that you go to in and around your area and generally to go eat? Well, sadly, my, my neighborhood has not had a, a, a lot of stability in terms of business, the, the West Main commercial corridor. There's not been a ton of stability there. But one place that has been incredibly stable has been the fish market across the street from my house, right at the corner of King and Main Street. And every Friday, there is a line that is, uh, let's put it this way. I don't have a, a garage or a driveway, so I'm a, I'm a street parker. And Friday afternoon, I just know I'm going to end up having to park on a different street. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great thing. I, I absolutely love to see how much people love the Friday fish fry routine. People from all over the city, people who grew up in that neighborhood but live out in the suburbs now, people who live down on Jefferson, walk over. Um, it's great. I do love a fish fry. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of really mayo-y coleslaw, mm. which is my one critique about this place. Got to go vinegar in the coleslaw. I'm totally with you on that, but the fish fry is, is perfect. So that's one answer. Uh, again, public market every Saturday. I try to mix up what I eat there and, and what I buy. Uh, but I, I do, I, I love food, and I particularly love food as a way. I think there's no better way to 
get to know somebody and to take away some of the kind of societal pressures about different conversations than breaking bread with them, or in this case, having uh, a, a snifter of, of, of some very interesting rum. But breaking bread is, is I've, I just learned it at a young age, in particular traveling through sub-Saharan Africa, that breaking bread with someone was the best way to break down any kind of barriers. Is there a specific dish that you ate there that you remember well? Well, I mean, the fascinating thing about the foodways of, of East Africa is that um, it's it's this cornmeal porridge that is always the kind of base for pretty much every meal. And it was really interesting because in every country I went to, the name changed. It was Sadza. It was Pop. It was a whole bunch of different uh, names. And also some of the spices changed. But it was always this uh, um, this base where you, you ball it. I And I hate using a fork and knife. So I was in heaven eating with my hands all mm-hmm. over the, the subcon uh, the, the continent, the sub-Saharan Africa trip I was on. Uh, you ball up the, the sadza, you take a little dab of vegetable, a little dab of protein, and, and that's the kind of nugget that you're eating. And so I love just watching this base uh, starch change from country to country. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up. I've been, it's one of the, you know, I've, I've learned, you know, through my, recent journeys doing curate uh, about restaurants, one that I hadn't been to. And it got me doing more research about the different cuisines. Uh, we worked with Camara's uh, 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 South Af- uh, West African mm-hmm. over on Plymouth. Yep. Um, and, you know, I knew a little bit about the cuisine, but not a ton. Uh, I'd been to like one or two Ghanaian restaurants in the past. And I, I learned more about it when I ate at this place and did some research and it's interesting that you brought up, you know, the the starch ball there and, you know, eating with your hands. And it, it tied to me, like, you know, what some people were familiar with, like Ethiopian cuisine here in town. So we have a few places that do that, eating yeah. with your hands with the injera. And then the West African with the, you know, cassava, the fufu with the, the ball of starch in the, you know, in the oxtail stew or whatever else it is. I'm like, oh, right. That's the cross between those two things is you know you're eating that corn with the vegetables there the Ethiopian eating with the pancakes the the cassava on the other side and then the lessons you'll learn about or you the research and learning about and you know how the West African foods translate into the foods we understand in the American South and Louisiana crossed with French and the uh, the Caribbean countries crossed with Spanish and all those different things and how that food is the root of any cuisine we consider authentic in the Americas. Right. Except for, you know, uh, traditional Mexican and obviously indigenous peoples of, you know, the U.S. and Canada. I also think it's, I also really uh, loved and appreciated the kind of sharing culture that this base starch kind of uh, uh, facilitated because usually you're sitting with a group of people and a bowl of that stuff comes to the middle of the table. Again, it all had different names, but let's call it pop because I'm thinking about my time in Zimbabwe. It would come to the middle and everybody might get their own uh, protein, their own, you know, I, was, I wasn't eating a whole lot of meat at the time, so I was really fish focused, uh, their own vegetables. And then you're sharing the ball in the middle and you're eating your own stuff, but that's, that's, it's facilitating this culture of making sure that you're not eating in a silo, which is actually one thing that I will say, I'm not a huge fan of the kind of new American, uh, I'm not a huge fan of some of the things that come with this 
new American cuisine where you're paying a ton of money for a very little amount of food. It's just kind of not the ethos that I, that I love at a, in a place where people are actually uh, struggling to get the adequate amount of nutrition. However, I do love this idea of shared plates being the kind of new current thing because it really does facilitate more conversation um, and, and a culture that I think is really uh, allowing food to do what it does best, which is bring down barriers. Yeah, for sure. So um, we're going to take a little bit of a hard pivot off of that because uh, I did want to touch on at least some of your um, some of the Rochester City Council and, you know, current things that are going on in in and around the city of Rochester. Sure. Um, one, uh, I know you spent a lot of time in the uh, Lyle and Mount Reed neighborhood. Um, I used to work on Emerson Street uh, right around the corner from Foodlink for six years over at uh, Micro Instrument. Mm. So I explored that area extensively. I drove on those roads every day. And we had, uh, you were talking about transportation earlier and, you know, some of the, um, you know, a terrible incident that happened recently with uh, pedestrian um, pedestrian deaths over at the corner of Mount Reed and Lyle. And um, as I'm sure you know, driving in that area, I drove down Mount Reed every day going through that intersection and man, it's, it's fast. I drove through that intersection fast many, many times. I'm yeah. not going to be... I'm not going to fool myself and say I didn't. I drove through the intersection tons of times fast. Um, transportation is so, it's such a loaded thing for, you know, I can talk about, man, I, I'd love better bike lanes for my electric bike in the garage that you saw on your way past. And, you know, I love that. But th those kind of transportation issues are the ones that really hit people hardest, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, although I don't think the two things are are unrelated. Uh, no. I, I do think that at the end of the day, what we really need as a city is we need to continue to build complete streets. Uh, complete streets is a, is a technical term that really talks about making sure that everybody, wh whether they're a driver, a biker, a walker, or a public transportation uh, taker has an opportunity to get to and from where they want to go safely and quickly and we don't have that on a lot on a lot of parts of our streets. I will say there's been huge improvements over the last ten years. I I I don't like to um, toot horns too much on this stuff, but it has been one of the real focuses uh, that I've brought to the table over the my, my four years in office is making sure we're thinking about complete streets with every single construction project we do. But Mount Reed is one. I mean, what what's worse than than Lake Avenue? Mm. Lake Avenue, where we see. Um, accidents and deaths at a clip that is absolutely despicable. I'm going to tell you a very quick uh, backstory. I, I don't like to just speak in platitudes. Probably in 2012 or 13, well before I was on city council, the council at the time um, was working with the state because Lake Avenue is technically a state highway. This stuff is oftentimes convoluted. Even though it's in the city, the state still controls some of the maintenance of certain uh, more commercial roads. So Lake Avenue is one of those. And the state said, we're going to actually provide money to do some transformations to Lake. And the city at the time said, we're going to do a road diet. And what that means, as you probably know, Chris, is it's taking uh, four lanes, bringing it down to two, right? Or maybe down to three, whatever the case may be. But when you do things like that, actually change the design of a road, it necessarily 
forces people to drive slower. See, people talk all the time, have better signage, have more enforcement. That doesn't change behavior, but changing the design of a road does. And here's the really sad part. The neighbors of Charlotte at the time told the state that they do not, and the city, they do not want this to move forward. So an opportunity to actually make the road smaller and safer was rejected because people had the need for speed. Yeah. Now, I want to, de I desperately want in the, over the next four years to get the state to come back, bring another pool of money, and to try this again and get people like you and podcasts like this to speak out and say, we need to think about building roads that are going to prevent these tragic accidents and incidents from continuing to happen. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of driving, you know, 55, 60 miles an hour on Mount Reed going to work in the morning. And if that had happened, that easily could have happened to me or any, any one of us driving up and down that road when we're just trying to get to work in the morning or get home after, yep. get home after that. And it's, it's terrifying to think of those kind of things. Um, and it's, again, we're, we're talking about something that is systemic. It's not, that's not one person's issue and it's not one it's not one tragedy. It's all of them together because we're not making a change. And it's cities that are built around an automobile, which at, at the end of the day, our city was really re reconfigured to be all about the automobile. That's why you have the inner loop. That's why you have what was called urban renewal at the time, which displaced a ton of people and tore down some incredibly old, beautiful, historic buildings and homes in the interest of building high-speed uh, roads to get people from point A to point B. That is not what we want right now. That's not what the larger community wants. And that's not where we're going when it comes to the kind of changes to transportation. So that means that our city and our state and our county need to begin to start to build the roads that we actually want to see. And those are not roads that allow for us people to drive 60 miles an hour down Mount Reed. It's, it's safer, it's less traffic, and it's more thoughtfulness. Well, and I think that takes us to the next topic I had in mind was, you know, we're talking about transportation, we're talking about roads dividing parts of the city, which inherently comes to the topic of housing. So uh, I know part of your platform was talking about sustainable housing for the people of Rochester. Um, obviously, our uh, real estate prices have gone absolutely staggeringly up in the last two, two plus years, two, three years in Rochester. And, you know, housing prices, even in, you know, in all different neighborhoods of Rochester have gone wildly up. Um, and this was one of the, one of the key tenets of your platform. What, what to you, what to you can city council and you as part of that do to work on housing in a sustainable way? And how, how what do you think we should be doing about that? It's a great question. There's a, there's a couple points I would make one um, from a, sustainability perspective and i want to be clear we're not talking specifically about like environmental sustainability as much as we are about this affordability yes yes so um i really believe in the idea of land trusts and our city city roots community land trust um really four years ago when i got into office was just starting and uh, i've worked with them very closely and they now have a, a a real track and pathway to be able to acquire a lot of property which uh, long, I'm sure I'll get this slightly wrong. So I hope folks from the land trust, uh, uh, can correct the record, but essentially the land trust, what it does is that it maintains affordability in perpetuity by keeping title to the land and selling the house on top of it to whomever they sell it to. And that 
owner can make renovations and remodel and do the things they want to do to the house. And, but that gets capped at a certain point where they can actually uh, increase the price when, when they go to resell it. So the subsidy, so a one-time subsidy is always, it, it remains versus a lot of these other subsidization programs where, you know, in my neighborhood, uh, the city, well before I was on, on council, the city subsidized the, the creation of a couple new units that they ultimately put $320,000 into. They sold the house for $80,000, $90,000. And then whenever that person fulfills their obligation of living there for, I think, 10 years, they get to sell it for whatever it's worth. And so the subsidy is just gone. Basically, we subsidize the place for 10 years for one owner. So a land trust is a huge tool to be able to maintain uh, uh, affordability and perpetuity. I also believe, Chris, this is the historian of me talking, we are a city that once had 330,000 people. We now have about 208,000 people according to the last census. There is room for us to continue to grow and build more units. We need to keep doing that. You know, I just saw today that um, the federal government put uh, um, added to the, the tariff on lumber that's coming in from Canada and other places. We can't build affordable housing if, if we can't figure out how to get the materials to build affordable housing. But that's what we need to do. We need to build more of it. And there is such a, 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 a preponderance of nimbyism where we don't want to build more. Don't build it here. You could build it somewhere else, but don't build it here. We need to build more affordable housing everywhere, period. And it, yeah, it's every town in Rochester. Obviously, the city, you know, the city proper, that's, you know, probably the highest need. But that doesn't mean there aren't people in need in Pittsburgh and Fairport. I mean, that's, you know, my wife lived in one of those communities when, you know, she graduated from college. Um, and you know, there was a lot of people on assistance and on aid. And th those communities are those areas are necessary for people to live. But at the same time, when we're talking about building what is now, you know, is generational wealth, it's building that something to hand down, something to have instead of just renting and having that ability to have that after. And it's also a sense of community. You yeah. Know, owning a house in a community is, you know, I don't love owning a house, but you know what? I'm part of an area now. I'm here. And this, this is where I am. I'm part of an area. You can't help but be. Yep. I, I, that's a great point. I really do believe we need to do some creative things to increase um, owner occupancy. And probably the biggest barrier to people buying homes is financing. And we have an incredibly problematic financing and banking industry, not locally, but na nationally. And there are some things that I think could be done to begin to change that, including, by the way, a bill that's um, at least been talked about at the state now for two years, which is uh, public banking. And so the city could theoretically have its own bank and begin to address some of these financing problems head on. We need there to be movement at the state level, at the federal level, as well as at the local level. Well, and I think local banking, I mean, I don't want to get strung off into an economics and banking discussion, even though I would love to do so. But I mean... There, there's huge value in local banks, not to use, you know, movies from the 40s as examples, but it's the it's a wonderful life syndrome of the local bank having the interests of its locality in mind with how it develops its policies, how it makes funds available to people that need them to benefit the community because that benefits a local bank. It doesn't benefit, you know, the large corporations. They don't really care about Rochester as a place. They care about it as a, you know, a profit 
uh, you know, profit center for sure, but they don't care about Rochester. The local bank cares about Rochester and a city bank could really not city bank, but a city bank or a county bank could care about its locale in a very different way. I'm going to pivot off of that. Um, so housing, um, just as an interest, this, this is one, um, uh, and recent, uh, discussions on, um, both on, uh, connections and other places. I believe you mentioned you were, you know, transitioning off of social media, um, due to, um, at least the explanation and correct me if I'm reading this incorrectly, um, was, you know, the, you know, the snap judgments and lack of lack of nuance in some of the discussions online. Um, and one of those that I saw at least recently, um, that you may not have seen, uh, was, uh, some of the discourse around the, um, tax break for developers in Rochester, mm. which was a recent vote. Um, I only know a little bit about this. Um, I read about it a little ahead of this and listened to a couple podcast things around the, uh, was it 485A tax break for, yep. uh, developers around, uh, tax subsidies for the first X amount of years, um, and basing their tax burden based on the current valuation of properties instead of the future value. And did, I, did I pretty good there. I heard an interesting episode on connections about that recently. And that was one recently when I saw online, uh, saw the vote. It was, you know, an eight to one city council vote. Uh, yes on that with uh, you on the yes side and one on the no. Um, it seemed like one of those fascinating topics where the passions were so strong on both sides that you couldn't not vote yes on this and you couldn't not vote no on this. And it seems like, sort of a prime example of that circumstance to me. Yeah, I, I think t to be even more specific, um, I think the the biggest reason why I've left social media, I think you, you hit it on the head with some of the things that you said, but I want to specifically focus on the lack of nuance because nuance is, whether we like it or not, it's real, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and in this particular case, there was this narrative that 485A was a tax break for for luxury developers, which is completely a which is a complete false explanation for what it is. The word luxury has nothing to do with, with the legislation. It may have been used primarily for luxury housing in previous years, but what the actual legislation is, and it's a state program to provide these tax credits for people who are who are converting previously commercial properties to residential. Now, we just got off talking through my belief, and I think most people who study this would agree that this is largely a supply and demand issue. We need to build more housing. We have a bill here that gives us, the state gives us an opportunity to incentivize the conversion of commercial properties to residential. That's a way to actually build more housing. And some people are against it. Now, I, I get being against it because you don't want to see two more uh, metropolitans, you know, the Chase Building becoming the metropolitan, which is how a lot of this money was used, again, before I was on city council. I totally get people's frustration with that, but that's not the only opportunity to use this type of tax credit. And how do we build more properties, more residential in a city like Rochester if we're not converting commercial? And all the time, the the kind of the flag I've seen raised over and over and over again is development without displacement, development without displacement. I couldn't agree more. Well, you're not displacing anyone by converting a commercial property to residential. So for me, it was really 
a pretty obvious slam dunk. There were things to change about it, which we did. This time it actually mandates the use of MWBEs. This time it actually mandates including at least 20% of affordable housing because I believe it's important to have mixed income housing all over the place. So it wasn't perfect and we changed some parts about it. But the idea that, that we are being asked to vote or that I was being asked to vote no under the pretense that it was specifically for luxury developers is an exact piece of evidence of where nuance just, it just does not exist in the world of social media. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a, I'm going to ask a tangential question around that development, the development going on in Rochester. I mean, I've um, spent any number of, um, you know, I've driven to Ugly Duck Coffee innumerable times, uh, one of my favorite places in Rochester. And the construction going around in that, you know, Charlotte Street area in the city um, is staggering. You know, the area around the Little Theater and Union and those areas, we're, we're seeing buildings go up left and right, those that are completed and those that are in progress. And we see that construction. In the end, with all that new construction, and sure, and as well some of the, you know, uh, repurposing of commercial properties and uh, buildings like the Sibley Building, that was, you know, almost completely unused for, you know, a decade or more. Um, what, what do you see as the final, the final goal for those kind of projects? You know, I, obviously there's a, some percentage that are going to, um, you know, to, um, you know, lower income people um, based on the regulations and other things like that. But do you see that as changing the way that area is or what, what do you see the end goal of those kind of constructions as? Because even if it's 20% for affordable housing, it's still 80% at market rate for those condos and, you know, apartments that are sold and rented. What, what do you see as that progression over the next 10 years as we get more construction like that going in the city? So two things. First, I want to, I want to dispel something. One, the, the, 20% of affordable was only for 485A. The inner loop is not that. The inner loop was all new builds. So actually for a lot of those properties, there's way more than 20% that are, are uh, affordable. And it's, again, affordable is a, is a term. It is not a feeling. It's it is, a metric. It is a metric that is governed by HUD at the federal level. And actually there's significantly more than 20% of the properties along the inner loop are in fact affordable again according to the HUD regulation, and th and that's fair. And I, I I didn't research the percentage, so I appreciate you correcting that. And and I should t I should be able to tell you what the exact percentage is. I I can't off the top of my head, but that is actually something I think the city ought to be more transparent about publishing because there's actually a really nice, um, uh, uh, mixed income kind of uh, what the word they use is bands, right? There's all these different income bands that exist on the inner loop. Um, for folks from all different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. That being said, I think the more important part of your question is what's the goal, right? Where do we? What's the end goal for this? And for me, I don't. This may not be everybody's goal. And again, I also want to. I also want to just point out that the inner loop development all happened. Feels like I was on city council forever, but I've only been on for four years, and all this stuff happened, and pretty much all of it was voted on before I took office. It's not exactly how I would have done it, but it it, it is what it is. I think the goal for me now is about density. I think that when we talk about the downtown Rochester being a place that can actually sustain 
a supermarket like Hearts that can sustain a liquor store like we were talking about, that could sustain a whole bunch of other commercial enterprises. What is required to do that is density. When we talk about trying to have streets that are walkable and bikeable, when we're talking about our bike share program that, that you know we worked very hard to bring back this year, all of those things are predicated upon this idea that we're going to have a certain amount of density that this stuff can actually work economically. And I think we're getting close. I mean, the the metrics that I always, that, pe- that people have always claimed to me was that you got to have 10,000 residents downtown for there to be a critical mass that can actually help to sustain um, a store like Hearts, for example. Well, we're, we're inching just around the 10,000 mark right now in terms of downtown residents. And again, there's a whole lot of downtown residents that are not just market rate like the Metropolitan. You have Andrews Terrace, which is the single biggest affordable housing community, 504 units right at the corner of St. Paul and Andrews. Um, there's a lot of mixed income downtown. And I think the question now is, will we be able to generate the economic activity to actually have restaurants and stores and things that allow people to live their lives for downtown to be uh, its own ecosystem. And I hope that we build enough density where we can do that. So we're, we're at our hour. Um, this has flown by, but I want to end off with a couple of questions that I think are, they're a little bit wider ranging. Um, but. Um, so you're just telling me not to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked one earlier about food link and I'm going to ask a similar question about city council. Um, what was the biggest unexpected lesson you learned in your first term, whether it's coming in from the perspective you were at the time and what, what was the biggest unexpected thing you learned? Consensus is impossible. I really did not. Uh, it's not what I was expecting. And my career at food link, actually, I think it's fairly easy to, to generate consensus when you're talking about it. How do we get more people fed? Yeah. I come from a world where uh, consensus, and actually in, in academia, you're, you never find consensus because academics love to argue with each other, but you're, everyone kind of is working towards a goal of having the, the argument that eventually becomes the orthodoxy, right? And in government, it just, there's just no such thing as consensus. It's, I, I'm right, you're wrong, my constituency, your constituency, this neighborhood, that neighborhood, there's just so little consensus. And that, that to me was really eye-opening. Uh, awfully disappointing, but also not, um, not, not, not something that we can't overcome. Yeah. And I can, I can see it on your face. You know, we, we talked about a lot of difficult things when it came to food and other things, but it seemed like that, that kind of hits you in a personal way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I wish there was consensus. I think that there's things about our city that, could just we could do so many things to make this city continue to thrive and to thrive in a way that it hasn't thrived before. And to me, you know, after I have I talk about our city every day with people, and there seems like things there should be consensus on, but then when you try to actually legislate on it, you try to actually get to the table and spend some money on it, and it and consensus kind of falls away. We'll see though. We're in a really interesting moment. You told me not to ramble, so I won't I won't <laughs> ramble much, but you know, perhaps I can come back on to talk about um, the cannabis industry, which I would is, love to. which is a place where we should have some level of consensus. It's it's truly a it's a unicorn. We're gonna have an industry popping up overnight that's gonna be a billion dollar industry 
that's going to have a major impact on the fabric of our city. We should be able to get to some consensus on how to do this right, but we're already we're already seeing fragmentation all over Monroe County, and it's a disaster already. And it's very New York State politics, and it bothers me deeply. Correct. So we're we're going to finish off on one other big question. I I would love to have you back, and we'll talk about any number of different things. But um, I'm going to ask a personal question. So this is a question somebody asked to me recently that kind of stopped me in my tracks. That I didn't immediately know how to answer. So I, I had an idea for something that I felt really strongly about. And I called a friend to ask him about the idea. And he asked me a question that I really hadn't thought about, which is kind of dumb in retrospect. Um, and I'll ask it to you is why did you feel it was necessary for you personally to run for office? So he asked the question to me, like, what, why do you have to do this? Why did, why do you have to do this? Not why does somebody need to do it, but why did you need to run for office? Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, I can say safely that in 2017, uh, when I ran for the first time, I ran because I thought that I was uh, uniquely situated to be able to do a good job. Um, I had literally just finished walking across the stage to collect my diploma for my PhD when I decided to run for office. I had just finished building a re- some really effective programming at Food Inc., which I didn't even get to talk about tonight, but I had... Uh, you know, I, I had just kind of finished uh, uh, starting or helping to start, I should say, um, the first cook apprenticeship program in all of New York State, which is a real game changer for job training in our community. And I thought that I had the skills and the tools and the knowledge to be a really good city council member. Um, that's what led me to run the first time. The, the second time I ran for re-election in part because, uh, I, I guess not in part, I ran for re-election because a lot of people that I had been serving and who I had been working with closely on different projects, but also just constituent services, helping make sure their garbage got picked up, uh, really asked me to run. We were losing, we're lo- we lost a lot of institutional knowledge in the, in the last election. Loretta Scott, who's been like a mentor to me on council, um, is, re- is retiring. Malik Evans, who's the, certainly the longest uh, public servant on council right now, is transitioning to mayor. And our city council is a very, very young body without a whole lot of experience. And so a lot of people really encouraged me to continue to, to run because they wanted to make sure that my experience was something that was going to be useful on council. And that is why I ran again. But in full transparency and candor, your question is something that I think about every single day in a city where um, you know, a white Jewish kid from Brighton um, is not always the voice that needs to be heard. And um, I very well may um, I very well may find that this is not the moment where I need to be out front and center uh, on anything. But I believe that what a good legislator is is someone who can listen to people, who can read legislation effectively, who can write legislation effectively, and who can communicate their thoughts effectively. And as long as I can do those things well, which I, I will continue to do, I don't need to center myself in this stuff. Yeah, and I think that's it's an important perspective to have, especially with the, you know, with the demographics of our city and city council at large. Um, I mean, it's, you know, certainly it's, uh, you know, two members who are who are at least uh, white appearing and seven who are not. And it's a it's a it's an important caveat for the whole discussion. But anyways, um, 
Mitch, I really appreciate you coming over and having a wide-ranging discussion about a whole bunch of the things. Um, if people want to reach out to you directly and ask you about anything they need to know, where should they reach out to you? Yeah, they can uh, reach out directly to me at Foodlink at mgruber at foodlinkny.org. Or if they have a question about the city, they can do so at mitch.gruber at cityofrochester.gov. But really, you can just Google me because I can't hide anymore, even when I try to. <laughs> All right, man. So this has been another episode of the Food About Town podcast. You can find me at Stormy on Twitter and Instagram, Food About Town on Facebook, and CurateMeals.com to grab some fantastic local foods. And hopefully in the future, we'll have an announcement for a uh, guest curated meal with Mr. Gruber right over here next to me. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next time with another episode of the Food About Town podcast. <laughs>